Let us worship God. Thus saith the Lord, he shall seek me and find me, when he shall search for me with all your heart. Jesus said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee that thou hast made known thy grace, mercy, and love unto us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank thee that through him thy word unto us is grace and peace. We thank thee for the presence of thy Holy Spirit. for thine infallible word, for the assurance that thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us. So we come joyfully into thy presence to praise thee and to rejoice in thy word. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture is Numbers 16. Verses 36 through 40. And our subject, the culture of holiness. Next week, it'll be the culture of rights. The culture of holiness, numbers 16, 36 through 40. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning and scatter thou the fire yonder for they are hallowed the censers of these sinners against their own souls let them make broad plates for a covering of the altar for they offered them before the Lord therefore they are hallowed and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel and Eliezer the priest took the brazen censers, wherewith they that were burned had offered, and they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar, to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, that no stranger which is not of the seed of Abraham come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah and as his company. As the Lord said to him, by the hand of Moses. This is an unusual and very important text. It is also a very comforting one when it is understood. It is very plainly declared to be for a warning to all future generations coming to the sanctuary. All the censors that Korah and his 250 associates, leaders, or princes of the tribes or clans, were to be melted down. These were made of bronze and were to be used to make a covering for the altar of burnt offering. A man was assigned to this task, Eliezer, one of Aaron's sons. Eliezer later succeeded Aaron as high priest. Although God had rejected Korah and his associates and had sentenced them to a swift death, incineration, 
the censers, having been offered to God, were holy, even though the men who offered the incense were presumptuous, evil, and sentenced to death. God will have his due of all men, even when they reject God and when he rejects them. How and when he does this is his sovereign prerogative, but he will have his due. For this reason, Eliezer is commanded to collect the bronze censers. He had no option but to obey God or suffer his judgment. God's claim on what was offered to him, even by evil men, was irreversible. But this is not all. In verse 37, Eliezer is ordered to scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. The fire in all the censers had to be scattered in order for the fire to go out. In antiquity and until recently, a fire was not allowed to go out casually. Before matches were invented, starting a fire was a slow process, and therefore an old fire was not usually put out. It was used to light a new one. However, even though the intentions of the man were evil and presumptuous, the fire had been dedicated to God. So, together with the censers, it could have no other use. Whatever is dedicated or given to God cannot be used in other ways. It is a part of the heresy of democracy to make what belongs to God common property. This was done by Red China in turning all churches into community buildings. And it is being done by churches which treat God's sanctuary as a multipurpose room. Originally, although it's been tempered somewhat, the church buildings of Red China were apportioned in terms of who could make the maximum use of it. Therefore, if it were the Communist Party, they had it on Sundays and the congregation might get it on Tuesday evening after 10 o'clock. There have been attempts, legally, to move in the same direction with regard to the nature of church buildings here in this country. Whatever is given to God, however, is for all time his property. We have a trace of this fact, once a Christian premise, in the law respecting all non-profit groups, which is still in force. All these groups, whether Christian or secular, on dissolution, their property and assets must by law go to a similar non-profit group. One of the great and neglected classics is Sir Henry Spellman's The History and Fate of Sacrilege. It was first written in 1632 
and last published in 1888. Occasionally, scholars will refer to it. They cannot contradict it. Spellman traced the history of all those families who took the church lands expropriated by Henry VIII. Henry VIII assured his success by making large numbers of men his fellow profiteers from the seizure of church foundations, buildings, and lands. Now, Spellman wrote, not too long after this was done, as compared with the noble families who refused to participate in this sacrilege, the participating families were clearly cursed in a variety of ways, including a failure of heirs. By 1632, of the 470 families out of 570 peers who were involved in the sacrilege, 66 or 67 had no heirs, and more failed to have heirs subsequently and their lines died out. Disaster struck these sacrilegious families to a far higher degree than any kind of misfortune hit the others, and all this in a relatively short span of time. By the end of Cromwell's time, the devastation that had hit these families was considerable. Sacrilege is no light matter. The fact that our age is blind to it no more alters the grim reality of this kind of judgment than blindness of one's eyes eliminates the sun from the heavens. The premise of God's law is the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. We are stewards in his house, stewards of his property, and we are given permission to use and do certain things and abstain from others. Sacrilege despises God's property rights. It creates its own rules. It is lawlessness. As Paul says in Romans 2, 21 through 23, Thou, therefore, which teachest another, teachest not thou thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God? All lawless men and churches are guilty of sacrilege, but sacrilege is especially serious wherever what is set apart for God's use is put to other purposes.
The bronze cover for the altar made for the censers was a continual reminder to those who would see with seeing eyes God's penalty on sacrilege. It was also a reminder to the priests if they would pay attention. In Bishop Hall's words of a couple of centuries ago, and I quote, it is a dangerous thing to usurp sacred functions. The ministry will not grace the man. The man may disgrace the ministry, unquote. It is thus a serious error to see the mere fact of ordination as conferring grace. Much of the church's trouble stems from this error. With respect to the censers being made into a bronze cover for the altar, Marsing uh, said, and I quote, The pall of sin had to be transformed at the Lord's command into the positive feature of a warning sign, unquote. In Psalm 76.10 we are told, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. According to Kirkpatrick, this verse means all rebellion against God's will must in the end redound to God's glory, and it serves to set his sovereignty in a clearer light. What this means is that all things work together for good to accomplish God's purpose including all the evil that men do. The amazing fact that St. Paul emphasizes is that this is also true for us, for God's elect people. In Romans 8:28, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Whether or not this is partially, fully, or not at all true in time, it is true for all eternity. According to Exodus 29, verse 37, whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. The same statement is made in Exodus 30, 29, and in Leviticus 6, 18 and 27. Anything withdrawn from the sphere of the profane, from outside God's sanctuary, becomes thereby holy. This means, for example, that baptism separates us from the profane world to make us members of God's holy congregation, and any profanation of ourselves is sacrilege. Now, the implications of this are very, very important. In the modern perspective, the concept of holiness has been replaced by the doctrine of rights. And man now moves in terms of a doctrine of rights, as we shall see in detail next week. Rights means, in practice, interests personal concerns. 
Man's will is exalted to the place of the final moral standard. And a culture of rights means, as John H. Hallowell pointed out, in the decline of liberalism as an ideology, complete subjectivism and immorality. Now, Hallowell wrote this in the 30s, calling attention to what had happened in what was the most advanced country in one respect after another in all the world, Germany. And he saw it as a foretaste of things to come. A culture of holiness looks beyond autonomy or self-law to theonomy or God's law. In a culture of holiness... Men look to God for direction. In a culture of rights, they look to men. In Haggai 2, verses 10 through 14, we are told, In the four and twentieth year of the uh, day of the ninth month and the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Now, these words are very relevant to our text and to our time, and to the church over the centuries and today. What man of himself communicates to things and men is sin. He has no inherent justice in himself that he can communicate to others. No morality, no merit that he can ever transmit to anyone saying, because you've entered into the precincts of this sanctuary or my house or my rule, I transmit this holiness to you. Holiness is not communicated by men or by institutions, but by God. And it is therefore to God we must look for the basis of our culture. Rights create at best and at their highest an eccentric or off-center culture whose direction is downward. The culture of holiness looks to God's grace and law, to his justice and mercy. Jude 11 has a reference to this episode and calls it the gainsaying of Korah. 
The word gainsaying in the Greek text is antologia. In the Greek, anti meaning against, and logia from a root meaning expression or word. It therefore means rebellion or disobedience against the word of God. Now this hostile word of Korah had been, ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them. Now, even had this been true in Israel or in the church, it could not be used to undermine authority nor to insist on an equality of all men one with another or before God. In the culture of holiness, as against the culture of rights, the goal of society is not democracy nor equality, it is justice, God's justice, and God's order, not man's disorder. We see again the very great importance of numbers. We shall see it again next week when we deal with the culture of rights as the people demanded it. A slave people demanded equality. They insisted on their equal rights before God. They rebelled against the authority of Moses, a God-ordained authority, and they died in the wilderness. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee that Thy Word always speaks to every generation, to every age, to every person. Give us hearing ears that we may hear and be conformed to Thy will. Open the hearts and minds of this generation. Awaken them by Thy judgment that they may turn unto Thee and we may again be a people wherein righteousness dwells. Grant us this, we beseech thee in Christ's name. Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. Well, the rebellion was really not against Moses, it was against God. Yes. Yes, it was against God. And... A great deal of the rebelliousness, whether of uh, children against their parents or parents against the various conditions of life, is a rebellion against God. One of the beautiful things that uh, I've been reading since 1951 was published after his death. Uh, Wilson, the Bishop of Sodor and Man, in the late uh, 1600s and early 1700s, a man of very great sanctity in his private 
devotional manual dealt very, very extensively with the fact that it was necessary to look to God for grace. And even though he was a high churchman, he knew better than to look to the church. And throughout his Sacra Pravata, as it is titled, he lays stress on the culture of holiness and the fact that man has no claim on God and God has every claim on us. Are there any other questions or comments? Well, if not, let us conclude with prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee that Thy judgment is underway against the culture of rights. And it is Thy holiness that shall prevail. Thou hast declared through thy servant the prophets that everything in due time shall be holiness unto thee. Give us grace to develop in ourselves and in our families, our culture, the way of holiness that we, our families, our possessions, our work, our funds may be holy unto the Lord. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.